Alright guys, so what we'll do is if some tables still have not finished theirs, you guys can just turn them in at the very end of today, and, uh, and we'll go from there. So if you guys can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, and today we are doing all of our discussion in the breakout rooms after we finish. I'm going to try to get done in 25 minutes. Who thinks I can do it? Probably not. 25, 30 max. So look at Romans chapter 7. Um, we've been talking about Romans, and we talked about how Romans 1 to 5 is this big theme. It's what God has done for us through the gospel. It's why Paul uses a bunch of big concepts and big words in Romans 1 to 5. Then Romans 6 to 8, we get into a little more practicality, if that's possible with Romans. And this is more about what God will do in us through the gospel. So if you're someone who's ever asked the question, as a Christian, once I'm a Christian, now that I'm a Christian, now what? How do I grow? And so if you've asked those questions at some point in your life, Romans 6 to 8 are really the key chapters in understanding how we grow spiritually, how we're sanctified, how we become more and more like Christ in our life as a Christian. A few years ago, I had this intern named Josh. This is many, many, many years ago, and he was a a great guy, and he was very honest, and we were talking over um, lunch one day, and he said, I'm struggling as a Christian with this concept. Now that I'm, I'm a, I've been a Christian for a long time, and he said, um, his question basically was summarized with this statement. He basically was asking me, if it's true that we are wretched sinners, I don't think he used the word wretched, we don't really use that word a whole lot in our, in our language, but he said something along those lines, then how do we have true joy? I'm wrestling with how is it that as Christians, we have this acknowledgement that we're really messed up, that we are um, no one apart from Christ. But how do we have true joy knowing where we come from and knowing our sinful state before Christ? And he was just wrestling with this, this concept. And maybe you haven't had that exact question, but maybe you've asked a question that's a little bit similar. And the question might go something like this. Now that I'm a Christian, why do I still struggle with sin so much? Like, like why do I still struggle with sin so much even though I'm a Christian? And maybe some of you have had questions like, you know, I struggle so much with sin as a Christian that I'm not sure I'm even a Christian. Have you asked these questions before? I've struggled with these kinds of questions growing up especially because I wasn't sure, you know, if I'm really truly a Christian, if I was really truly saved, then shouldn't I have graduated from certain sin struggles by now? And I struggled with these questions when I was especially at your age. And so look with us. We're going to see um, Paul address these, these questions and issues as we look through Romans chapter 7. So look in Romans chapter 7. We'll look in verse 7, starting off. Romans 7, verse 7, where Paul says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to, convict, to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I'm just going to warn you that Romans chapter 7 is one of those headache chapters. 
When you read it, and you're like, wait, what did he just say? I'm going to try to just boil down for you this morning the big ideas of what he's talking about. The first thing he's talking about is the law, the Mosaic law. He's trying to point out what the law, that the law does three things for us. The first thing the law does is it reveals sin. Paul says, how would I know what coveting is if the law never said, thou shalt not covet? So the law reveals sin. The second thing the law does is the law provokes sin. So the law doesn't just define sin or reveal sin for us. The law actually stirs up sin inside of us. It provokes sin. And when someone in your life says, don't do fill in the blank, what do you want to do? You want to fill in the blank, right? You want to, whatever that is, you want to do it. I see with my own kids at 8 and 5, if I say don't do whatever that is, it's like that's what they want to do. I have given them a reason. Wait, so it's like Satan in the garden again with that. It's like, wait, so you're saying this is, this is fun? If it's sin, it must be fun. So I want to try out whatever you're saying I shouldn't do. And this is what we struggle with. Because something in our hearts just wants to do wrong just because it's wrong, right? There's something, it feels good to be bad for us. In fact, uh, we, we talked about St. Augustine in the early part of this uh, series. He's an, a guy from, I think, around 300 A.D. who was a Christian. And he was a guy who lived a very crazy lifestyle before he became a believer, and then wrote tons of, of pretty amazing books that people have read throughout the centuries. And in his book, The Confessions, he tells a story about stealing pears. Now, you guys would never think about, like, stealing. I'm going to go steal something. I think I'll steal pears. That's not where your mind typically goes. Um, but back then, uh, he was just with some friends, and they were in someone else's property, and they wanted to steal some pears. And here's why he said they did this. It's crazy. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pairs of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. So I'm sure you can think of a time in your life when you have done certain things that you did it just because it was wrong. That's why you did it. There was nothing, you didn't really gain much out of it. You just did it because you're not supposed to do it. This is why some people say, stolen fruit tastes sweeter. Have you heard this before? It's, there's something about doing the bad thing that feels, makes us feel good. I can think of two examples in my own life when I was, I forget what age I was. I was maybe like third or fourth grade. And girls, just a warning about guys, guys go through like a destructive phase. Have you noticed this? And we don't know why that is. We just do. And so me and my friends, we had discovered a way for us to short out all the electrical sockets at school. I won't tell you how to do it because I don't want you to try it. It's very dangerous. But we did this. Like we would, it'd be bathroom break time in class and we'd like go in the bathroom and suddenly the lights are going out in that section of the school and the sockets are being blown and they have no idea what's going on. And we're just like in class like, hee, 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 he, right? And it got to a point where they come onto the computer screen. Or they come onto the um, loudspeaker after like two weeks of this. And they're like, someone is sorting out the sockets in the school. And it's destroying the whole computer system in the entire school. And we're like, 
wow, that was unintended consequences, but yay for us. And uh, so that was one example, and we, we did go ahead and cut it back because we felt like we don't want to be, you know, crazy vandals. And, uh, and then another time, about the same age, was when I was at a friend's house. He lived close to this river um, that eventually flowed into the Potomac River, and um, we're in, a, in these wood, wooded area by his house, and we found this amazing, like, pristine pontoon boat docked outside this guy's house, and it was kind of docked in the mud, and the river had kind of receded, so it was kind of muddy around the boat, and this boat was immaculate. It was like perfect carpet, perfect controls. Everything was just shiny. It was just perfect for a good mud smear. And so my friend and I, I have no idea why, we just started getting mud and like smearing it on the side of this boat, and we're like taking mud and like throwing it into the buttons and the controls of this guy's boat. I mean, just horrible. It's all his idea. Horrible stuff that we're doing to this guy's boat. And then we think we hear like a door open, so we like run through the woods back to his house. And what happened to that friend that started that with me is he ended up going to jail eventually in his life. Um, so later on, but he's out now, so that's good news. Uh, but, but yeah, so you, when you are a kid, for some reason, like you just do things that are bad just because they're bad. Did I have anything to gain by doing, nothing to gain by doing those things, but there's a something in us where it just feels good to be bad. And we all experience these kinds of things in our lives. So what Paul's trying to say is that the law actually stirs up sin and provokes sin in us. And we want to feel independent, like we're our own boss. So we violate the law just because it feels good to be bad. The third thing the law does is it condemns sin. As you'll see throughout this whole passage, the law condemns sin. So all of these things would have caused the Romans to ask, okay, is the law sin? Is the law itself bad? And Paul's response is that, no, the law's not bad. The law just reveals sin. The law shows you what sin is. I would use a picture like this. You guys know about any kind of cancer screening technology is going to involve like an MRI or a CAT scan or something along those lines. So these, these, these machines that can detect cancer in your body, we would never say the machine itself is bad. We would say the machine is actually good. Now, it might reveal some bad news, but the machine itself is a good thing. Because when you find cancer, even though it's bad news, the good news is that it might be treatable. And in the same way, the law is not in itself bad. The law simply shows us that we're sinners. The law shows we have a cancer of sin in us. And that we can then, hopefully, once you know that, come to know who Christ is and come to saving faith in Christ. Now the cancer can be treated. Same is true for the law. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, the law can't save us, but it shows us that we need to be saved, that we are sinners Unless this law does its work, we won't look to Christ. We'll be in denial about the depth and nature of our sin. We need the law to convict us before we can see our need for or have a desire for the grace of God in Christ. If the law doesn't show you and I our sin, we're not going to ever turn to Jesus. If the law doesn't do its work. And I want you to get from this passage today, you, you can't just, the law doesn't just show you that you are a sinner. The law shows you the depth and nature of of your sin, because sin is, 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 is about internal attitudes, not just about external behaviors. 
Most of us think of sin as being these external things that you do. But before you and I ever sin externally, there's always an internal attitude that's behind the sin. There's the root of sin behind the external fruit that we see on the outside of our lives. So sin is always about internal attitudes, heart attitudes. This is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 8. Jesus trying to make the point that it's not just about murder and adultery, but the heart attitude of hatred and lust. There's always an internal posture that you and I have towards sin before we commit external acts of sin. We see this in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, when the serpent says, what does he say? He says, you'll be like God. If you eat this, partake of this fruit, the fruit that God forbid you to eat, if you eat of it, you will become like God. So what was the first sin? Was the first sin eating a piece of fruit? Or was it the desire to become like God? There is always an internal sin that lies behind the external outward action of sin. It's true of of all of history. And so this law shows us the depth of our sin as well. Look at verse 13. It says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And I mentioned to you guys, um, we see that the law shows us that we're sinners. But you and I can never say that what's, what's wrong with us is like this separate being of sin, because the sin is still, in a sense, a part of us, even when you're a believer. And there's a lot of debate among Christians about how much of that's true, and is it flesh, is it nature, do you have two natures, do you have, I don't think that's the big point. The big point in Romans 7 is that every Christian struggles with sin, whether you call it flesh, whether you call it old nature versus the new, whatever you call it, every Christian struggles with sin. And looking down at verse 14, I think you're going to find that this passage especially will make your head hurt. Uh, Look at verse 14. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, there's this debate about this passage in Romans 7. The big debate about Romans 7 is always going to be, is Paul describing um, his life before he became a Christian or after he became a Christian? And here's why I think he's describing his life after he became a Christian. Because he says things like, in verse 15, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So I think he's describing the life of a Christian because I think, We can agree that as a Christian, you start to have these new desires where you want to obey and follow God. And if you're going to describe sin as something that you actually hate, then I think he's describing the life of a believer. Someone who, they they hate what they are doing. And I think you guys can all relate to this idea that you do things over and over and over again, and you ask yourself the question, like, why did I do that? Why? Why, do I, why am I stuck in these same sinful patterns over and over and over again? And I love Romans 7 because Romans 7 
gives us a glimpse into the life of the Apostle Paul. And, and, and his description of a sin struggle. I mean, how comforting is it to know that someone like Paul, who wrote Bible, who wrote, who was chosen by God, how comforting is it to know that Paul himself struggled much in the same ways that you and I struggle with our flesh and with sin? This is a comforting passage for us to read. And I think you can take great comfort in this passage as we go through it. So verse 17, interesting, because it says in verse 17, he says, so now it is no longer I who do it, referring to um, reference to sin, but sin that dwells within me. Let me tell you something. This verse does not give us a ticket to say, you know, it wasn't my fault. It was sin that dwells in me, mom and dad. It's not a ticket to say that. Paul's not saying that you don't, get to, you don't have to own your sin. He's simply pointing out that this, this sin that still is in me in some sense is not in line with my new identity as a believer. And so in that sense, it is not who I am, but it doesn't mean that I get to say, oh, not my fault. No, it's our fault. And we have to own it and take full responsibility for it. Look at verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So again, you could be tempted to say, hey, it's, it's sin's fault. It's not my fault. But look at, the, look at verse 18, though. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so what he's trying to communicate is that you and I can desire what's right, but we can't do it on our own. And what came to me as I read this passage was this next quote. Go to my next slide. When you and I sin, we are held responsible for it. But when you and I do something good... We can't take credit for it. Because this passage also says that we can't do anything good on our own. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything good. So if this is a depressing thought to you, that everything that's bad about us, we have to take full ownership of and responsibility for, but anything good we do, you and I can't take credit for any of it. And here's why this is so important, because if you don't understand this concept in your walk with Christ, you will be driven crazy. You will constantly vacillate back and forth between feeling like, oh, I feel like a good Christian. Oh, I feel like a horrible Christian. I feel like a wonderful Christian. I feel like a horrible Christian. You'll go back and forth, back and forth, if you don't embrace both of those truths up there on the screen. Because if you do something good, you'll be patting yourself like, hey, I did that. And it leads to pride. And then you fall back and forth, vacillating between feeling like a great Christian, a horrible Christian, riding the roller coaster. You have to understand that you can't take credit for anything that we do apart from Jesus Christ. It all goes, all the glory goes to him. All the glory goes to him. 
Look at verse 21. Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. There's that word again. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So we see often this sin battle. I know in our, in our world today, we often see the sin battle between um, flesh and spirit. It's, it's depicted in movies and TV shows sometimes, at least it used to be, as like you're this neutral pawn and there's like this angel on one shoulder and a little devil on this shoulder and one's telling you to do something bad, one's saying do something good and you're like in the middle just like, I don't know what to do, right? And this is how we portray the spiritual struggle, at least in our, in our popular culture, right? This is not the picture that Paul paints in Romans chapter 7, because that's too simplistic. The way Paul presents it in Romans chapter 7 is that there's like this, there's like this true self, the real self. He calls it your inner being. And then there's what you struggle with in your members, sort of your external being, which is where you struggle with sin. And so there is this conflict that goes on, but it's just different in how Paul describes it. And the issue he's trying to get to in, I think, Romans chapter 7 is, which is the true self? Is it my inner being or is it my members? And I think he's pointing to, you know, your true self is this inner being he's describing in Romans chapter 7. Now, um, Many years ago, I went to Dallas Seminary, and there was a guy who spoke at a chapel service. His name was Dwight Edwards. And uh, some of you guys may even know about the church that he used to pastor. He used to pastor a church in College Station, either called Grace Bible Church or Grace Community Church. I'm not sure which, what the name of it is now, but um, that's a church that he pastored for many, many years. I mean, he's a DTS graduate. He actually went to UMHB. I just discovered that this past week. Went there for undergrad, then he went to Dallas Seminary. Um, very gifted speaker, very gifted teacher. And many of your uh, former, former ancestry, ancestral Aggies went and heard this guy preach many times at the church in uh, College Station. But he was, he was given this week-long series in our chapel services at DTS, and he taught on this passage, Romans chapter 7. And it was one of the most memorable talks I'd ever heard when I was in seminary. And he set the talk up like this. He talked about how the Christian life boils down to two questions. First question is, what do I want and what do I really want? I'll explain. He used the example of, take something like just lust and pornography as a sin struggle that many people have. And he said, now if someone presents to me um, a stack of pornographic magazines or access to something on the internet, he says, is that going to be a temptation for anyone? Yes, of course it, it will be. And so if you ask the question, okay, in that moment, what do I want? Well, my flesh, my sinful nature, whatever you want to call it, is desiring to sin in that moment. It's, it's, it's wondering, oh, can I, can I just engage in this sin and no one's going to know and 
it, it, it's not a big deal. And, and so you justify it in your mind. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which your flesh, you do want to sin. It's very real and present in every Christian. But the next question, what do I really want? That means in the inner being. As a Christian, what do I really want? Well, as a 39-year-old man, I really want to be able to go home and look my wife in the eye, knowing that we have integrity, knowing that my conscience is clear, knowing I've been faithful to her in all aspects. That's what I really want as a man. And so he set the question up that way, and that makes perfect sense. This is describing the Christian struggle. There's the inner being, what you really want, what you really truly desire, and there is the, yeah, what do I want? It's, yeah, I want to sin. And there's a conflict. And so as a Christian, one of the keys of the Christian life is understanding this, these two polar opposite questions. That for you to li- live and grow as a Christian means that you understand the Holy Spirit has to begin to change the inner being to where you begin to live out what you really want. Because it'll match up with what he really wants. And I wish that was the end of the story for Dwight Edwards. In fact, he has a, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, old Puritan preacher back in the 1700s. Dwight Edwards is like his great, 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 whatever grandson. A lot of tradition in his family with with pastoring. But several years later, after that talk at Dallas Seminary, I heard and I read, it was a big, big deal, that Dwight Edwards left his wife and had an affair with his church secretary. And now he's um, doing, I don't know what he's doing now, but he is uh, no longer pastoring the church in College Station. He's kind of moved on, obviously, because you can't maintain a ministry and keep integrity if you're going to live your life this way. And so here's the lesson for us from that story is that you can take the knowledge of what I just said to you. What do I want? What do I really want? And it doesn't mean the sin struggle is going to go away because Dwight Edwards wrote books about this stuff. Like he wrote books about and he, he, would, he was pastoring people and yet Satan still found a way, his own flesh still found a way to bring him to his knees and to humble him to where he's no longer doing that kind of ministry anymore. It's a sad story. But the thing I just told you will not be some key that goes, oh, I've got it. No more sin struggle for me. That's not what I'm trying to communicate to you. Romans 7 is perfectly clear that the sin struggle is very real, it's very present, and it's very powerful. And if it's true for Paul, it's true for us. And here's where you have to be really careful because... When you're at your age, you tend to look at certain people as these great, amazing, awesome, almost sinless Christians. Like there are certain leaders in your life that you look at and think, oh my gosh, if I could just live like that person, if I could just be like him or her. And so when I was around 15 or 16 years old, I tried to envision the kind of man I would be when I, you know, met that special someone and proposed to her and got married to her. And at 15 and 16, I'm picturing like 10 years down the road, and I'm picturing myself as like this awesome Superman Christian. 
at that point of life. I'm like, man, by the time I get to be a, I want to lead her spiritually, and I want to do all these things, and I want to be this awesome, godly man, and I had this image of myself. And then at 24, I met her. 26, I married her. And it hit me where I was 26, and I went, you know what? I'm not half the man I thought I'd be when I got married. I'm still struggling. And then I became a pastor. Like, it's always weird going from, like, being an intern at a church to being like, oh, now you're like the, you're like the pastor. People call you pastor. People call you reverend. Some people do that. I'm like, what is that? So there's all this pretense, right? Like, oh, Pastor Dave and Reverend Dave. And like, I'm like, what is this? And, and yet there's this pressure you feel of like, man, when I become a pastor full time, that means I got to have my life together. I got to have my everything in order. And I picture myself being this amazing, super Christian when I became a full time pastor. And guess what? It's not true. And it's still not true. And I was half the man I thought I would be when I became a pastor full time. And I still am to this day. And so I want to set you free this morning that this is, this struggle is going to be the struggle that you have for the rest of your life. It will be. And if this thought is depressing to you, then you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. Because your hope has to be in Jesus and his righteousness, not in some future version of yourself. The reason for this is because if that's how it works, then if you, if you just, if it, was, if it was all about putting your hope in some future version of yourself, then you would just get prideful about that once you got there, right? And so I started thinking about this. Um, my kids love the game Shoots and Ladders. Do you guys like this game? Do you guys still play this game? No, not really. Probably not. I still play it because I have to, um, but my kids love this game, and it's great because there's no skill level involved. It's just flip the switch, see where you go, and you might go up a ladder, you might go down a slide, but um, I think a lot of us, we kind of look at the spiritual life kind of like shoots and ladders where you, you climb like this incline or ladder system to get to the top. And here's the way shoots and ladders works, though, because you can climb and climb and climb and climb. You're doing really, really well. And there's that one slide. Everyone knows that one slide, right? The slide of death. This whole, the worst one ever. And it goes from almost to the top all the way back down to the bottom again, right? It's the one that you want to try to avoid in the game shoots and ladders, and if you and I view the spiritual life like it's this incline, this ramp, or like this ladder system that you climb, here's what would happen to us. The moment you get to the top, well, then you become prideful about being there, and now you lack humility, and now it's back down to the bottom again. And this is what your spiritual life would become if it was just a ramp incline or a ladder system as you think about the Christian life. And so this is why this is the one quote I want to leave you with this morning, and it's this quote, the more holy you and I become, the less holy you will feel. The more holy you and I become, the less holy you will feel. No one ever gets so advanced in the Christian life 
that they no longer see their sin. Like you just see new sins. You just see new struggles. And if you ever see yourself as pretty good Christians, you're just deceived. If you ever see yourself as a pretty good Christian, you're just a pretty little liar. That's all you are, right? And so I want to go back to the opening story. Um, my intern was asking, like, how do I find true joy if, I, if I'm just a wretch? Like, how is this, how can I live this way? And I want to encourage you to cry out with two things. There's two things you should cry out to God with, whether you're a new believer, an old believer, or not yet a believer. And the, the cry that we see in, in verses 24 and 25 is this. You cry out to God with these two things, wretched man or woman that I am, but you also cry out with, but thanks be to God. This has to be the two cries of every Christian, because the more you see yourself as a wretch before God, the more you see yourself as a true sinner before God, you've got to let that truth cause you to go back and drink of God's mercy and his grace over and over and over again. And if you don't understand your sin, you'll never understand his grace. Let's pray. God, we're just so grateful that you save us the way that you do, the way that you, um, you demand that we give all glory to you. Whatever good that we do, Father, is because of your work in our lives. We can't take credit for any of it. All of it is for you. I pray, God, that Romans 7 would unleash just your spirit in this room Unleash your spirit in this church. Unleash your spirit in our lives personally. That we'd understand that what we really want is to follow you. What we really want in our inner being is to know you and to obey you and to follow after you. And pray all these things in your name. Amen.